living the dream on holiday break yeah how long do you have off till january 3rd 4th january 4th nice sounds good so like the company's closed christmas eve till january 4th but i've only been like one trip this year so i have lots of vacation time i had to burn is it the company's off it's just you shut down the website and <laughs> you know we'll be back on january 4th that would be dope <laughs> but no we <laughs> We have an on-call rotation and we just pick up some extra responsibility while we're on call over holiday break. It works out. Nice. I definitely was not in bed 10 minutes ago. (laughs) If you hadn't messaged us, you would have not been here. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, let's dive right in today. So Nate Berkepec is back with us and just wanting to catch up with him and talk all things rails and performance and maybe some Puma in there. So Nate, welcome back. Hey, thanks. And real quick, maybe for those who haven't listened to our previous episode, would you mind just giving kind of a brief introduction about yourself? Yeah. So my name's Nate. I run a Ruby on Rails performance consultancy I call Speed Shop. And Speed Shop sells a couple of things. Mostly my big product is the Complete Guide to Rails Performance, which is a book that I wrote in 2016 and have updated a bunch since. That's what it is on the tin. It's a complete guide to making Rails apps faster. And very recently, about a month ago, I released something called the Rails Performance Workshop, which is a more in-depth and video-based version of this material that I've been teaching around making Rails apps faster. And new in the workshop is a whole section on scaling and how to deal with increased request load. So that's what I've been doing. And I also, as you said, maintain Puma. Very cool. Welcome back. The workshop, now a virtual product. I don't want to assume, but did COVID have a part in that or was that something on the books before? I would say it forced a hand there because so I've been doing this workshop in like various formats for two years now. And the previous format was in person. So in the summer of 2019, I toured like 20 US cities and did this workshop as like a roadshow. And I did it at RubyConf. I did it in a bunch of different cities. And it was like a one day kind of thing. And I would come in. You would come to my workshop. I would teach you in person for a day, a group of like 20 people. And that was great. But then in the fall of 2019, my wife and I decided to fulfill a dream and start living a little bit of like a digital nomad lifestyle. And we were traveling the world from the end of 2019 until August of this year. So I I couldn't do it in person anymore. So I was like, okay, I like doing this training and it helps people, but we can't do it in person anymore. So in the spring of 2020, January and February, I started doing it online. And it was just like through Zoom, really. So it was like, I was doing Zoom training before it was cool. And I had a bunch of people go through that in the first quarter of 2020. And then COVID hit. And... I kind of got away from training for a little while. So I I was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. I was actually in Japan at the time. And the time zone overlap was just brutal. Doing a live training 
from the Pacific is just like, with most of my audience being you know, US and Europe, it was just not going to happen. It wasn't until the end of this year that I decided to record it. And one thing that kind of tipped me over the edge was like, I was just doing this course a little bit over this workshops a little bit privately over the summer for different companies. And, and I, the feedback I was getting was like, the live stuff is good, but I go back to the recording and I watch it over and over. Like I'll play certain sections. I'll watch a certain section a couple of times. I didn't really get it when you said it the first time live. And people don't like to speak up. They don't want to stop the flow of the thing, whatever, because we have limited time together. And honestly, I think as we've all learned, two hours on a Zoom just sucks. Like it's not fun. And it, your attention drops off after 30 minutes. So that format of delivering an eight-hour workshop as four two-hour Zoom calls was just too much of a grind. And so I decided to record it, put it into a recorded format, which let me put more into the workshop. Now I don't have to cram it into like a one-day or certain format so I could put more content in it. And I could also expand and put more hands-on stuff into it. One of the things I've always liked about my material is I put a lot of hands-on exercises into the materials. Like in the scaling section of the workshop now, there's a part where you create like a... Basically, I would call it like a mini model of a web app. So you have an application that serves load, and then we have a program that generates load. And I talk about the different settings that can impact your ability to process requests and the latency that occurs. So like... We can talk about really complex issues, threads competing for the global VM lock, increasing latency. And I can actually show you that on your local machine through an exercise. So it just seemed like a way better format than what I was doing. And that was the inspiration to put it all together into the package that you can get now. That's awesome. Do you have plans to go back into kind of the in-person training or you feel like this kind of format is started to show some more advantages over the previous one? I think from a learning perspective, I think it's better. I think it's better than trying to cram it all into one day. I think it's more likely that people that are motivated enough to get to the material, they're going to have a better experience with it. I think what I still wonder about is, A, I think, especially on the corporate side, I wonder if there's just like a premium that people pay for in-person. They just want to be able to say they flew in the expert and do that whole thing or whatever. And so maybe that will never go away from my business. The other thing that I wonder about would be, I don't have a good strategy yet for keeping people involved and motivated. So I think for a self-guided learner and that someone that has the motivation to get this material, I think it's perfect. Outside of the issues of motivation or like keeping people moving through the, the whole thing. I think this format's perfect. But I understand that the fact that I lock you in a room for eight hours means that this is all you could pay attention to, right? For the whole day. That's a little bit different when it comes to going through this material on your own. People have tried to sell cohort-based courses. I don't really want to run one of those. I thought about doing like cohort light, like a study group kind of experience. Maybe I'll do something like that in the future. I don't personally see it as likely that I'll be doing a lot of in-person workshops to general public like I've done in the past. Just 20 people in New York trying to fill up a room, whatever. I probably won't be doing that again because I don't see the benefit for most people. I'd rather improve an online product. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And you can, like you said, improve it, just hone it and make it better and better. That's cool. So for those who are interested in learning more about performance, do you recommend they start with the course and then work their way into the workshop? Is there one that's a better fit for someone? The workshop contains the complete guide to Rails performance. If you're thinking you're going to do both anyway, you might as well just buy the workshop because it'll save you 50 bucks. <laughs> the material, it, it assumes the same level. So I don't assume that you've read the complete guide to Rails performance before you come into the workshop or whatever. Both all of my material assumes that you're a beginner intermediate Rails programmer with a year of experience writing Rails applications, working on Rails apps. And the new workshop is, is no different than that. So I think it's more of a question of, A, how do you learn best, right? Do you learn well from a video format? And B, how much time do you have? If you're looking for like a reference manual, if you're just looking for something to solve one quick specific problem, the book is probably enough. You can look up the solution in the book, fix it. That's fine. If you're looking to gain a skill to become a performance engineer, then I would say take the workshop because it's more appropriate for building and maintaining this like muscle of performance engineering. I've got a heater I want to throw your way and you can feel free to reject it. Hot uh, takes. We is, are, is, this a new, is this a new podcast segment? Hot takes of Jason. <laughs> yeah, this is it. This is the debut. No one knows it's coming. Not even Chris <laughs> and Andrew. So today we are basking in the release of Hotwire. And I'm curious from a performance perspective, because we've been using Stimulus Reflex at Podia pretty religiously. And so I'm just curious from a performance perspective, are there any downsides or even kind of performance benefits to doing HTML over the wire like that? This is the whole topic that got me into performance in the first place. Like the very first time I ever talked publicly about software performance was a conference. I gave a talk about Turbolinks and why I thought it was so cool. And that was a pretty hot take in 2015 when everybody wanted to write Ember and have a new Ember app. So some guy to come out and say, actually, Turbolinks is super cool. Was The only other person saying at the time was David. So that was a pretty hot take to have back then. And it's, it's something I haven't changed my position on at all. I still think it's probably a better path for... 90% of possible web applications. So I haven't had a lot of time to look at Hotwire yet. I mean, as you said, it just came out this morning. So I haven't really had a lot of time to see what's new and what they're doing. I think that fundamentally, the JavaScript-based, JSON-based front ends, so we might call that like a thick client approach, where the only thing that's going on the wire is state, right? So just JSON, pure state. And that approach seems to be suffering from a worse law. So the idea that as software gets more complex, it doesn't get any faster. Or as time goes on, software doesn't get any faster, even though hardware gets faster because software just is more complex. So JavaScript thick clients seem to have suffered from that for the last 10 years, and it hasn't really gotten any better. The mobile web for whatever is left, I think you could say in 2020, is pretty much still unusable on Android because the Qualcomm processors are just not very good. And JavaScript performance is still terrible on Android in 2020. It's pretty good on iOS. I think, and David, I think is, has acknowledged this, that thick client is getting better on mobile, on iOS. That's catching up a little bit. And maybe these new Qualcomm chips that are 
being announced right now, maybe we'll change the game a bit. But basically, if you ship a thick client in 2020, 25% of your audience is just gone. So thick clients, you just got to say goodbye to Android smartphones. And I've actually seen this multiple clients where they just, I start talking about, okay, so how much of your traffic is mobile? Okay. Wow. 60%. Yep. That's great. And how much JavaScript do you ship it down? And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't really care about mobile web. Screw it. I'm not like an app strategist is not like my like forte, but it just seems silly that 25% of your audience just gets told F off, go use our native app. If we even have it, I don't really get that. So one huge advantage, I think of these HTML over the wire frameworks is the JavaScript load is 10 times less easy. doesn't matter which of these frameworks we're talking about, Hotwire, Turbolinks, whatever. The JavaScript load on the client, both over the network and just in terms of like pure bytes and also like the compiling and executing is 10 times less. So it actually becomes usable on a mobile device. And that's the whole Turbolinks promise is we're going to use web views to provide the same experience on desktop and on mobile, and even in a native app, like using the native app shell or whatever. So I think that has always been the biggest advantage over JSON on the wire for me has been the actual applicability to mobile web and not having to just say, screw all these people that use Android. It's still the same trade-off as it was in 2015. The networks are fine for latency now. So if you're on a Wi-Fi connection, I can be reasonably sure that in 2020, you're within 100 milliseconds of AWS or at least a CDN. And so that provides pretty good performance for clicking buttons. And then if your pipeline here is like click button, execute basically no JavaScript, execute two lines of JavaScript to start an AJAX request, and then wait latency around trip time plus server response time, and then come back. And then again, you're not doing anything. When the response comes back, there's nothing to unparse. It's just take text, shove into DOM. Like it's a dollar sign dot inner HTML. There's nothing to do here. The only components on that hot path of HTML to wire interaction are so simple. And it's just gated by server response time plus latency. So that by itself, I would say is probably a 10x improvement, 5 to 10x improvement over the old style of a full browser navigation where we have to rebuild the JavaScript VM. We have to rebuild all this other stuff. We have to go on the network to get assets and stuff. So just... Moving from the traditional flow to HTML on the wire is a huge benefit. And I don't think it's that much slower than a thick client approach because the thick client still has all that stuff on the path, right? Like a thick client still has to go to a server. It still has to do that network round trip. So really we're talking about what is the difference between writing our clients on our client UI code on the server versus on the running on the client itself. And I think there's tons of advantages to doing it server side. Yeah, that's really good. I've been really happy using Stimulus Reflex, Podia. We've been doing a lot of cable-ready stuff. I don't know how familiar you are with cable-ready, but basically it's a way from the server to send like JavaScript executions to the client so I can be like, go find this div and change the inner HTML, stuff like that from Rails. And we've been really happy with that. It feels backwards because like we're pushing against the grain of as you said like thick client but at the same time it also feels so much simpler because we're just writing ruby code i'm glad to hear that from a performance standpoint hotwire is in the right direction because 
it's encouraging for me. We all use interfaces every day that take this approach. So every single one of us listening to this podcast has used GitHub. And the GitHub File Explorer has always been HTML on the wire. So it was PJAX, and I think it still is. So that approach, if you actually look at the network tab, when you use GitHub and you click around in the file explorer, that's HTML going back and forth. There is no client state about here's all the folders on the screen. It's just here's the HTML. Go slap it into that div in the middle of the screen. And Cookpad has just used straight up Turbolinks. If you go look at their header on there, you'll see it. You'll see data Turbolinks track on cookpad.com. Basecamp, of course, has been doing all this stuff. And Shopify for a while has used Turbolinks in various capacities. I think they're getting away from that now, but they've gone in and out on that. So it's not like this doesn't get deployed, right? It's not like it's not like people haven't been doing this. I think the GitHub File Explorer is pretty good, especially I hate to rag on them for this because they've taken my training, but GitLab by comparison, I think feels awful. GitLab it uses like half view, half it's just this hodgepodge of like view and then like server side stuff. And compared to GitHub, the performance is just not there. And from my perspective, looking at the web client, it's mostly the view. Like it's mostly that approach and executing all that JavaScript. It's just way heavier than the approach GitHub has taken. And I hope GitHub doesn't lose that. I hope GitHub doesn't decide that and pull like a new Reddit someday and then like deploy like new GitHub and it's way worse than the previous version. And then we all have to use old.github.com. But when GitLab came to me for training, and I can say this because all their stuff is public, which is really cool about GitLab, like all their stuff online and all their development, all their stats is all public. And I was like looking at their Prometheus dashboards and stuff. And they're like, they're all like public dashboards. Like I didn't need a password or anything to log in. It was pretty cool. But like their server side performance was fine. Like it wasn't bad. GitHub's is good, which I think helps them. But GitLab's wasn't bad. And it just felt to me like the front end approach that was taken was the worst of both worlds. And I think you feel it. I think, I don't think it works very well. And especially for apps that maybe started in like 2012 on the Rails Golden Path when none of this stuff existed. I think the transition to stimulus reflex, we'll just call it HTML on the wire, is easier than to say, to try to retrofit that app and say, let's just JSON on the wire only now. And then you end up with this like half-baked thing where like half of the app is crap and the other half is not very well-written, thick client and... I've just seen that a lot as well. And I think the apps that take this HTML on the wire retrofit instead seems like less work and it seems like they end up getting a better result. It truly is half-baked. I kind of wanted to dig into Puma for a little bit. On that note, I was going to ask about stimulus reflex and Hotwire and all these are moving to like, we're going to use WebSockets and just have an open connection to send HTML across instead of Ajax requests. That, I assume, is generally faster because you have a open connection all the time or whatever. But I was curious, how's that affected Puma and moving everything over to WebSockets? I think people are still a little afraid of, can they scale? A lot of people were like, here's any cable. The stats on that were like, it can scale way better than Action Cable itself with Ruby. But I was curious if you could talk to scaling your WebSocket side of things. Yeah, I'm worried too. <laughs> I, I had a very skeptical, I wrote a very skeptical uh, blog post about WebSockets in 2017 or something, and I'm still skeptical. I think the debate is still out. I think 
the obviously now with Hotwire taking WebSockets on, that's going to push this forward a lot. I think you lose a lot. One of the things that I've been really curious about with the HTTP approach here is using CDNs and HTTP caching to build on top of this approach. And you can't do that with WebSockets, right? Like with WebSockets, there is no caching layer except the one that you implement. But with a CDN and a more traditional like Turbolinks or PJAX approach, if I can cache content at the CDN, then you can click around my site, click from tab to tab and get the rendered HTML from the CDN. And I don't have to be involved at all. And that's a super scalable and powerful approach that you can't do with WebSockets because the CDN is not aware of what's going on there. It's not privy to that conversation that's happening between the client and the server. I think that there's still ground to be mined maybe a bit on the HTTP side. There's also cool things that are happening around the preload resource hint and other resource hints. So like on my personal speechop.co site, I'm trying out approaches where certain links on my pages are marked with this resource hint. And I'm using basically like a custom fork of PJAX. And my site will go fetch those pages as soon as you land on the current page. And then when you navigate to the next page, so like when you go from my homepage and then click blog, there's no network because the network's already done. I did that with two lines of HTML and 20 kilobytes of JavaScript. I'm trying to figure out what we gain from WebSockets. And I still don't think that case has been made well enough. Other than, oh, now when client updates, I can push them to the client instead of pull for them, which means that they can come down five seconds faster, which for a chat app, obviously, certain things need to be real-time or real-time-ish. Yeah, I guess you have to use WebSockets for that. But does it really matter if like my Twitter notifications come in five seconds earlier or not? I don't think so. And fundamentally, the current Ruby networking ecosystem is not built for concurrent connections. It's not built for holding open many connections to many clients at the same time. And Puma is designed around this world of HTTP stateless. I don't have to hold connections open for very long. And when I do hold open connections, it's not like a big thing because I have to send heartbeats or whatever. So in Puma 4, Evan merged in a change where we now no longer just use IO select and we will use NIO4R, which is new IO for Ruby, underneath the hood, which basically is we did because we thought it would allow us to more efficiently hold open many connections at once. That, that's sort of like backend infrastructure that we really haven't taken advantage yet of in Puma. There's an issue open on the issue tracker about like, quote, native WebSocket support, unquote. I don't think it's still unclear what that really means in Puma's context, but we definitely thought about it. There was some implementation work done that just didn't really get completed. It's not really my area of interest. So like I haven't been working on it. Like you said, I think the table stakes, it seems like nowadays, is any cable. The reason why this doesn't work very well right now is because there's A, no primitives. There's no really like good Ruby in Ruby way to manage lots of open connections. And B, we have the global VM lock. So it's difficult for us to take one process and say this one process will handle 
10,000 concurrent connections. Because what if 10 of those want to run Ruby code at the same time? Then we're screwed. Threads and no GVL allow us to manage that a lot more. A JRuby or Truffle Ruby theoretically app, we could have a better time with that. The other side of fixing that problem, I would say, is being done by people like Samuel Williams. So Samuel IO Quadics Online, his work around the fiber scheduler, I guess you call it. And instead of using threads to manage many concurrent connections, using fibers. And it seems to work a little bit better for holding open many connections at once. The other side of that might just be Ractor. So Ractor and the fiber scheduler, in my opinion, seem to sit in the same problem space. And Ractor obviously will be released in hopefully about a week. And that will help us to solve the same problem of let's hold open many connections at once. Because theoretically, if I can just spool up a bunch of Ractors, that will help me to better deal with, all right, I've got 10,000 connections. Who am I going to make listen to them? Who's going to listen to all that data? What happens if they all want data at the same time? I could see that from Puma's perspective. I could see a combination of Ractors plus our quote-unquote native WebSocket support being a better place where we can fit into this WebSocket ecosystem. But like I said, personally, on a personal level, I'm still waiting for the why is WebSockets better, so much better for me to like go with that approach instead. A stateless protocol will always scale better than a stateful protocol because a stateless protocol, we can scale with an infinite number of horizontal actors, right? So a horizontal scale out of servers, right? Because each request contains all the information that's needed to serve it. So I can scale up, scale down, whatever, as much as I want. But with a stateful protocol, those like WebSockets, those questions become a lot more complicated. What happens if I want to take this server down? Where do all these connections go? I think that makes stuff a lot harder. So yeah, a lot of questions. I still feel like they haven't been answered very well. I think it's not like long polling doesn't work for this. So you can still do that. Asking the client, asking for more information every five seconds. It's a problem we know how to solve, right? Like maybe it's an expensive way to solve it. And maybe WebSockets will help us solve it cheaper. But it's a solved problem. We know how to do that. So picking that technology in 2020, I don't think is a bad choice. I have a noob question for you. What is the global VM lock? First of all, I'll point everyone to my article on this. I think I broke it into two posts on speedshop.co slash blog about the practical effects of the GVL on scaling in Ruby. And that kind of talks about... The, I have to define the GVL for I can talk about like why it scales or how it affects scaling. It's also going to be in my new book, which is going to come out in January, The Rails Performance Apocrypha. I also have a section in the GVL about there. So if you want to go into this in more detail, I suggest you take a look at that. All it is inside of your Ruby process, there is a virtual machine that runs Ruby code. And if you just go ahead and open up a Ruby command line right now, and it's uh, Ruby-E puts hello world or one plus one or whatever you want, then dash dash dump equals ISNS. And what that does is it actually dumps the instruction set that's generated from your Ruby code. So the way that Ruby actually gets executed is, is we turn your Ruby code into these virtual machine instructions. Those virtual machines instructions are executed by the virtual machine. So that's a little bit like a CPU. You don't run Ruby code on your CPU. You run 
the x86 instruction set. So like we don't run Ruby code, we run these instructions in the Ruby VM. The global VM lock is a per process global. So we're talking about like an individual Ruby process lock around the virtual machine. So only one thread gets to access the virtual machine at a time. Only one thread in a process, Ruby process, gets to access that virtual machine at a time. Now, you can already guess like the practical effect of that is only one thread gets to execute Ruby code at any given point in time. So our programs do a lot of things which are not run, uh, executing Ruby code, such as waiting on IO. So waiting on a connection to send you more data or waiting on a database response or whatever. So threads can do that at the same time, but in a Ruby process, only one thread gets to actually run Ruby code in the Ruby VM at a time. So that's why we call it the global VM lock. Nice. That was a great explanation. And it kind of shows you like, this is how like Puma can still be effective and useful, even when you're using regular MRI C Ruby, because Puma has two jobs. One is to deal with the client and both send and receive bytes to clients. We don't need a GVL for that. And the other side is to actually run your rack application, run your Rails app. And that we need the Ruby VM for. So like right there, even with the global VM lock, Puma can do useful stuff with multiple threats, even if the VM lock exists. Nice. Okay. That's good. I'm like trying to process all of this. It's a lot in my small brain. So we were talking about Puma before I interrupted you with the lock side note. So is there anything on the horizon for Puma? Not like in code right now, I would say. Mm -hmm. So like I've been taking a break over the holidays from Puma and we got into a really good spot before the holidays. The pull requests, open pull requests and open issues are lower than probably they've ever been since I've been maintaining. We are closing out a lot of bugs and stuff after the 5.0 release. I would say that what I'm looking forward to in Puma is stuff that I guess I could say we only have ideas around right now would be stuff like getting rid of the C extension or at least getting rid of parts of the C extension. So there's a C extension in Puma, which really it was built around originally to parse HTTP. It was originally written by Zed Shaw for Mongrel. And it's, his name is still in the code. It still says C Zed Shaw 2008 or something like that. And not only getting rid of that C extension, but also getting rid of the SSL. Probably SSL will happen first. So we've got this custom SSL extension. And basically, we decided about a year ago that actually we don't need it. And we could be using the built-in SSL libraries in Ruby instead. And anytime we can get rid of C, which is much less maintainable than Ruby, it's definitely something I'm looking forward to as a maintainer. Also, we have a lot of backed up feature requests for stuff in our SSL implementation. Unlike Unicorn, Puma is designed to be run with nothing in front of it. So like you can run Nginx or whatever in front of Puma as a reverse proxy, but you don't have to. Unicorn is very much not designed for that. Unicorn is not really designed to be run naked in front of to the internet. It says right in the readme, use a reverse proxy. And Puma is not like that. So we've always had this use case of just run Puma by itself. We'll do the SSL. We'll do the request buffering, all the stuff that you depend on Nginx to do. We'll do that for you. And... So the SSL implementation has always been part of that, but it's a huge maintenance 
burden because it's all done in C. SSL is changing a lot because more people are using it with HTTP2. So getting rid of our SSL C extensions, I think, would be great. It's also a big cross-platform problem because everybody does it a little bit differently. And so one of our maintainers, Greg, has to do all this work, getting into stuff to work on Windows. And it's just a bunch of stuff I wish we didn't have to do, which we wouldn't if it was just written in Ruby. So I continue to look forward to all the like refactoring and stuff that we're doing and get to do in the future because it's allowing us to reduce maintenance burden and to ship more stuff on top of that. It also helps us to fix bugs. We shipped a huge refactor to the reactor, which is the internal part of Puma that allows us to... Its job is to buffer incoming client connections and say like, okay, is this request ready yet? Do I have all of your data or not? That part of Puma just got completely refactored in 5.0.3. And we fixed a lot of bugs just by doing that. And the refactor is so much easier to understand. It uses more like Ruby primitives, I would say, like Q and all the stuff that we should have been using in the first place. And it looks so good. Shipped like, I think he, the author of that, Will Jordan, got rid of 600 lines of code and added like 200. So that kind of simplifying and adding to the stability of Puma is something I, I really enjoy. The day I learned about Ruby Qs, never knew about that before just now. Yeah. I think we use sorted set too, which is another kind of like concurrency thing. Primitive, I would say. If you're interested in like concurrency in Ruby, I would say if you go look at Puma slash lib slash reactor.rb, I would say it's exemplary. We're very lucky to have a contribution like that, of that quality come into Puma and uses a lot of these kind of like Ruby concurrency primitives in a very straightforward way. And it honestly looked more like C before. Like it was written much more procedurally using fewer like language features, I would say. And it, it just looks really good now. Before we go, I had some questions. I just wanted to end on more Nate questions more than Ruby because you said that you were traveling the world. What was that like? And you said you came back. What's in- the world outside my house like? I forgot. Exactly. You said you came back what in August? I did. So you were like you were out in the world yeah. uh, during a pandemic. Yeah. So I was just curious your experience and what that was like and what it's like now being home. Yeah. So in March, we were in Mexico. And that was when this news started to come out. And we're like all wondering, what the heck is this coronavirus thing? And we were kind of looking at the case numbers and the way they were growing exponentially at that point. And we had planned to go to Japan in three or four weeks. And then we're looking at the case numbers. We're looking at the case numbers in Japan. We're looking at the number of hospital beds in Mexico City versus the number of hospital beds in Tokyo. And basically did like an Indiana Jones coming in under the gate as it's closing to Japanese immigration. And we actually woke up on a Sunday morning and we're like, we got to go and left that night and came in under the wire. I think they closed the border like a week after we got in and basically got stuck in Japan. So we were in Japan from April until August, got like a, a visa extension because the Japanese government agreed that it was too dangerous to return to the United States. And yeah, didn't come back till the end of August, actually. So now I'm back in, in New Mexico, where I was living before. It's definitely a big cultural shift because walking 
in Tokyo, like 95% of people just wear masks. And there was really not a lot of like argument about that. People just wore masks. And then coming here, it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that was like before people got serious, I think here. Now it's at like Walmart and all these other companies like just got behind the masks thing. And it seems like there's less controversy now than it was in August. But the other thing was like the kinds of masks that people wear here people will just put like these bandanas over their face. And it's like, I don't think that really does anything, dude. Or like the vents on the mask where it's just, you get to shoot COVID at me, but you don't have to suck in any COVID. I don't understand what's the thinking there. And in Japan, it was like all paper because if there's one thing I think you could fault Japan for, it's like, they just throw away everything. Everything is packaging. Food at the supermarket is just like packaging. And so the idea of everybody wearing paper masks all the time was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So that was a little different as well. I think now you just look at the numbers, right? One country is taken a lot more seriously than the other. And I think that definitely has, has, has showed. Yeah, it's a little weird, a little bit of a weird shift, but uh, uh, back here for now. I think it'd be so fascinating to see the response to the pandemic in another country. Like you were there for six months, five months. That's cool. And everybody cleared out, right? Like we were the only tourists left. It was us, the expats. And that was it. Pretty weird experience. I live in Tennessee, which is the current global leader for COVID cases right now. (laughs) Yeah. When you said you got back and masks were a little more controversial, I get it. I I get it. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show again. Last time we talked, we were at RailsConf hanging out with maintenance workers and people just walking around RailsConf Conference Center because Chris and I weren't smart enough to be like, hey, can we get a room for this? We just recorded in the hallway. So this was a much more controlled and easier to talk in environment. So appreciate you coming back. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me back, guys. That was pretty scrappy remote Ruby back then. The good old days. (laughs) It was. I was editing that episode and I spent so much time trying to clean up the audio from it. That like I still to this day hear Chris saying, what's up, Jason? Because that was the beginning of that clip. And it's just embedded in me now. I don't miss editing. Anyway, where can the people find you online? Speedshop.co and Nate Berkopec on Twitter. Awesome. Uh, Thanks again for joining us. And we will all talk soon. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See ya. Later.